welcome to Hey Hey Agave. Today on the show, we are speaking with Farron Salniker. Farron is a journalist who writes about the intersection of food and culture. She has been published widely in print magazines, newspapers, and online media publications. Farron is the event manager and coordinator for Mescalistas, the online publication that is a great resource for thoughtful reporting on the mezcal industry. They also produce Mexico in a Bottle, which hopefully most of you listening are familiar with. If not, it's an event that highlights the vast variety of agave spirits from Mexico. It's an awesome, awesome event. Farron also publishes her musings from her travels on her blog, Farinlandia. In this episode, we are focusing on women in mezcal. Farron joins us today to share her experiences traveling throughout Mexico and researching women in mezcal. I have to say, I have an inherent issue with even describing a topic like this because women have been and continue to be a huge part of the mezcal industry. However, as Farron details in this conversation, women mezcaleras and vinateras and producer-owned brands have not had the same exposure and representation as they deserve. We unpack the reasons for why this is while highlighting some of the women Farron was lucky enough to meet on her trips throughout Mexico. This is a topic I would love to continue discussing, and I would ask our listeners, if you know of women mescaleras and vinateras that we didn't mention, please share them with us, and we will post an ongoing list on the Hey Hey Agave page at tuyo.nyc. You can always email us at hola at tuyo.nyc, or you can DM us directly on Instagram. I'm also aware of quite a few women-owned brands, both Mexican and American-owned. We kept this conversation to producer-owned brands for the most part, but we will absolutely host more conversations that do include women-owned brands in the future. Lastly, I wanted to mention Mezcal Week, an international celebration of Mezcal for one week. This year, it's being held September 8th through the 15th. Mezcal Week was created by Mezcalistas, and it's a great time for restaurants, bars, brands, and retailers to organize special events, tastings, cocktail specials. So if you're interested to participate or just want to find out more, you can check them out at mezcalweek.com or follow them at mezcalweek on Instagram for more details and if you have an event you would like them to promote. I know New York here uh, has a bunch of really cool events coming up for that week, and we are participating in at least one of them, so please stay tuned. Also, if you haven't had a chance, I encourage you all to go to the Hey Hey Agave page uh, on our website. Every conversation that we have, our guests are very generous with us, and they um, donate images and content about um, the topics that we discussed. And so there's a lot of really good information there. So please do check that out. Thank you all so much for listening. If you wish, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us so much. Thanks again. And here is our conversation with Farron. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Farron, so great to have you here. Great now, here. you are a food journalist and an event producer. So I'd like to just introduce the audience to you. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background, how you um, got into journalism. Yeah. Um, so I actually studied journalism in college. Um, and then I studied journalism and Spanish. And then I didn't go into journalism. I work for nonprofits. I'm from the Bay Area, and so I moved back to the Bay Area and was primarily working with nonprofits that were um, working with immigrant entrepreneurs and people making things locally and starting businesses. And that was great. 
Um, and it kind of re-inspired after a few years, uh, my, why I was initially interested in journalism, which is telling people's stories. And I just got really attached to this story arc of people making things, including food, um, but also other like local goods and starting community businesses and finding home or community or economic opportunity through those businesses. And so I started kind of telling those stories through my work at these nonprofit organizations and then on the side as a freelance journalist. So um, is that when the blog got started? Yeah. So uh, I kind of started the blog as like a creative outlet, I guess, um, while I was working these nine to fives. And it just became about food. What is the name? Of the it's blog? called Fairinlandia, which I didn't, it's not just like an egotistical name. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, when I lived in Mexico, um, I used to come home from a long day of school. I went to school in Mexico for a year and I'd be kind of out of it because it was really hot where I lived. It was in Merida and Yucatan mm. and I was tired from like speaking Spanish all day. Your brain hurt. My brain hurt. And so the family that I lived with as we sat around the table and I was kind of spacey would say that she she was in Ferronlandia. Are you spacey by nature? No, I'm not. (laughs) So (laughs) so people might not know it. I am from California. So, you know, we are on another wavelength. (laughs) What'd you say? (laughs) Um, And so Ferronlandia is, about the experiences that can happen around a table. And what year did you initiate that blog? When did you start it? Oh my God, that's a good question. Probably 2010. Um, But it was very like not serious, mostly for friends and family for a while. And then um, I started freelancing on the side of my nonprofit work and mostly writing about food. And then I kind of took, started taking my blog more seriously around the same time. So that was probably about four years ago. There's an interesting crossroads. Uh, we were having a conversation with Noah from um, a, a couple of podcasts ago. And uh, he was mentioning the same kind of timeline, 2010, that it was like it was the boom of the f- food blogs, that there was a lot of writing, there was a lot of options yeah. to read. Uh, that no longer exists much. No, Noah had a blog called Cheap Eats um, yep. in New York City that got a lot of recognition yep. while it was active, um, but he came to it in that way as well. It's yeah. same timing. It yeah. just it was interesting. Like even that you were far away, yeah. Like it was it was kind of like on the same uh, wave. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I've been following your blog ever since we met, which has been about a year now. And I have to say, anybody that is uh, traveling to Mexico and um, looking for information and insight into where to go and what to eat, please go to Ferenlandia. Like, it's awesome. It's a very, very concise, very broad resource that you have for people. Mm-hmm. What other publications are you writing for as well? So uh, I recently moved to LA. And before that, I was in the Bay Area and I was writing for a lot of the local pubs there. So SF Weekly and um, East Bay Express and the Edible Magazines um, and a few others. And now I'm being a bit more choosy with um, publications that I write for. So 
I recently did a piece for Whetstone Magazine, which shout out to them if you haven't checked it out. It's a great new magazine about food origins. Um, oh, that sounds amazing. I haven't heard of yeah, them before. Yeah. So I did a story for them on a native plant uh, culinary traditions in Baja, looking at um, what the indigenous tribes there, what they, how they've fed themselves and their traditions and how they're being threatened a little bit by development in that area. Oh, so you had to, you got to spend some time down there with mm-hmm. them? Yeah. Oh, that must have been incredible. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so that's the kind of magazine I want to write for where it's really about origins and not about trends. Yeah. <laughs> you mean you don't like doing puff pieces? Yeah. I mean, that's fun, <laughs> but um, not really where my heart is at. Well, we're happy to link um, to these articles on our website when this podcast comes out for sure. So everybody um, look to that. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your entry point into Mexican food and Mexican beverages. And I know we've spoken a little bit about your background, your family. Um, I believe you're all fluent Spanish speakers, Mm -hmm. um, so that there's something there. But you yourselves are not of Spanish origin, right? No. So um, I am a descendant of um, mostly Ukrainian Jews uh, that came to the U.S. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side and my great-grandparents on my mom's side. Um, and But my, my mom and my stepdad are bilingual teachers and have traveled in Mexico and South America a lot. What do they teach? Uh, they're, they were elementary school, public elementary school teachers. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And so um, speaking, they didn't necessarily like speak Spanish to us at home, but speaking Spanish and just speaking another language was like a shared value in our family. So both my sister and I learned from a pretty early age to speak Spanish. And I also grew up in around a Mexican American community. So I was familiar with uh, Mexican food and culture. And so when I started writing about food, I felt like that was one area of a food that was just underreported and poorly reported. Things have changed a bit. Um, but this was around like 2010 when you were yeah, starting to think about writing about this. people still had such great misconceptions about Mexican food. Um, oh, like what? Yeah, like, you know, like <laughs> it should all be cheap um, and it's just tacos and burritos and... Oh, the burritos that they're not Mexican? Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, and so... I just felt like as someone that had been blessed to learn about Mexican food and travel to Mexico, um, I just felt this pull to write about it. So you were in Yucatan, right? Yeah. So So Cochinita Pibil. So good. Don't get me started. Um, Gabrielle, can you explain (laughs) what you were just referencing, please? It's the origin of the mythical plate called Cochinita Pibil and is absolutely amazing. Farron will probably go in more detail than I can say about that. Well, um, it's one of the traditions that is wonderful in Mexico where various animals are roasted underground. And so cochinita refers to a pig 
Um, and it's made with different spices, uh, oranges that are... It's a very citric yeah, base. Yeah. And um, salsa-ish mm-hmm. garnish. Yeah, yeah. Paired with like purple onions. onions. Purple and all onions. of the vegetables and everything are roasted together in the pit? Or? Not necessarily. There's, there's a mix of fresh vegetables with roasted uh, condiments inside the plate. But you can do, there's, you know, there's tacos, there's tortas, there's flautas, like anything that you can put it into, you will find cochinita or even by itself. And is it always um, pork? Mostly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. This, this, this style can be used for something else, but the original plate is definitely, that I know is, is pork. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what else about the Yucatan experience of, of living down there for a year? Well, yeah, that wasn't the really... The, my first time living in Mexico, um, I had visited before with my family, but that was the first time I was there. So I was there for a year. I went to, um, it was like a study abroad through college. And I just established some really tight relationships there, still have good friends there. And just after that felt very comfortable in Mexico and um, just wanted to keep going back. And I loved food then, but I wasn't writing about food then. That was in college. Um, but I, if I look back, like I said about the name of my blog, so many of my experiences happened through food, and I learned so much through food. And I think that in general, food is just a great entry point to learn about a culture, but also to break barriers and meet people. Um, Did you have, have like... I don't know. Was there sort of like an aha or like a specific moment of, of that time that just stuck with you? That's like, wow, this is, this is everything. This is food. This is culture. This is my experience. I probably had multiple (laughs) moments. Um, I can't think of one in particular. I mean, I do remember, uh, waking up from a beach party, um, and it was sunrise and uh, just seeing the fishermen go out in the morning and and then going to eat ceviche on the beach and cure my hangover with <laughs> lots of salsa and more beer. And um, nothing's better. Yeah. Nothing's what, better. better than that? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Not, you've heard it here first. Why wouldn't nothing. you want to keep returning to that? You also were in an area that there's a lot of touristic part but probably you were in a town that wasn't touristic at all yeah um Merida is a beautiful it's a beautiful city yeah beautiful city and um one thing that's interesting about Merida is that when I was there I do remember that you could find very traditional Yucatecan things like salbutes and cochinita pibil and um, sopa de lima But there were a lot of restaurants that were kind of trying to be mainstream Mexican, you know, where they had mole or enchiladas, different things that weren't super particular or traditional to the Yucatan. And now if you go, like if you were to go now, you can find a lot more restaurants that are kind of embracing Yucatecan food and a lot of young. And bringing it up to a more high-end levels. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And a lot of young Yucatecan chefs that are doing that. That's really exciting. Yeah. And so And is that because the industry is booming there as far as um the you know traveling? Married up for yeah. what I have been reading, like he he's getting like the highest rates of like Mexican living. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of interesting. Like they have been it was a town city that you will not hear much about it. You know, the Yucatan, you have, you know, more of the beach area and the archaeology area and Las Coloradas, that is a beautiful space. Like, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff will be on the map. But the, the city itself, city, yeah. well, like, okay, yes, Merida. Mm-hmm. But like the, the buildings are absolutely dead gorgeous. Like, it's, it has colonial style around the, like around the city still. Like, it's really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating city. It's Mayan. Um, there's just a lot going on there but I think it was pretty under the radar I guess for yeah. tourists when I was living there and now um yeah there's just a lot more restaurants art galleries um and I think a lot of it is due to young Yucatecans feeling that pride and capitalizing on the like new wave of tourists that are coming for sure that's awesome yeah, yeah, that's really exciting. Do you yeah. get, do you get back often? I haven't been in a couple years. I really am it's time. Itchy. Yeah, I'm like it's yeah. time. Um, I went to last time I went. I went to Hold Bosch, which is a little island off the coast. Um, that I more now. Almost every day I see someone yeah. on my Instagram well, feed Bosch that's going. showing up on our radar, I want to say like, I don't know. 15 like, years ago. Probably in the beginning, like 15 years ago, but it really amped up maybe like five years ago. Yeah. And same, like we still, like people are coming and visiting us. I'm like, I'm just at Hope Bosch. Have you ever been there? It's so incredible. It's a this really little good island. friend of mine. Basically, today, she has part of her family lives there now. Oh, cool. But they have been living there for, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years. Wow. Last time I was there, I went to Hold Bush and then I went to Merida and it was like middle of summer and it was so hot and I was staying with friends who had a pool. Yeah. And I they were at work when I got there and I literally just got into the pool and ate mangoes until <laughs> my friend came to pick me up at 4 p.m. And we went Full straight of mango to the juice beach. In the face. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably like still in my bikini sweating. <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> that's how you do that. <laughs> so that's really interesting uh, point of like entry into Mexico, southern Mexico in the Yucatan. Is mm-hmm. that also when you became familiar with different Mexican beverages? That's a good question. So I I think I started drinking mezcal um, in the U.S. Like my family in college. So after I lived in Yucatan, my mom and stepdad moved to Michoacan. And so I would go visit them on my breaks um, during in college, and then they go back now every summer. They also have a lot of tight relationships there, and their work now is kind of involved oh. with artisans there. Cool. Yeah, and so I would go there, but I wasn't really drinking mezcal in college, um, and then afterwards not too much either. So I think my entry point was really in the u.s probably due to the mescalistas well that's a wonderful segue (laughs) okay i didn't know that yeah so um you also work for with mescalistas Mm -hmm. and let's just give people if they don't know a little bit of background um who mescalistas are and talk about the website a little bit okay so Mezcalistas was started by Susan Koss and Max Garone as a 
blog that was raising awareness about mezcal. And now it's evolved into a blog plus, I would say. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's just a wealth of uh, resources about mezcal, about where to find mezcal in the U.S., um, where to find like what kind of mezcal is out there, um, mezcal education, and then events. So uh, we put on a festival called Mexico in a Bottle, which is like a live tasting event. Um, and all of it is to raise awareness of the category. You guys, I think that a lot of people that are listening have been to a Mexico and a yeah. bottle at some point. How many um, states are you guys uh, doing that in currently? So we right now we do five events. Uh, they are in San Francisco, San Diego, D.C., Chicago, and this year we're adding Denver. That's really exciting. Yeah. Yay. I, I love it. I mean, sad for us because you guys won't be in New York this year, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll work on that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you write for them as well as, yeah. as help to produce the events, correct? Yeah. yeah. So I'm kind of, my title is evolving always, but it's event manager and then I write and um, basically whenever I'm traveling to Mexico, I, it's now mezcal focus. So yeah. Um, I, I am interested in mezcal, uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the same reasons why I'm interested in food. And that is, there's so much connected to food. It's just a lens to view politics, um, environmental issues, culture. And so that's kind of my pathway into mezcal and what I like to write about as well. So, you won't find blog posts from me that are super technical or necessarily about tastings, but you might about a visit to a region of Oaxaca or, um, you know, a profile of kind of women in Mescal or something else like that. Like the last article that you wrote for yeah. them. That was really good. You guys check it out. Um, we'll link to it, of course. <laughs> um, and also, let's just touch briefly on the new division of the Mezcal Collaborative, um, which is part of Mezcalistas. Is that right? It's a, yeah, it's Ish. like a sister organization. Okay. It's a, um, a membership group, and the goal is to uh, grow the Mezcal category responsibly. So there are um, educational resources. If you go on the website, mescalcollaborative.com, there's a number of educational resources like Mescal 101 or sustainability in Mescal. And you guys have a very diverse board that sits and and helps to... um, I guess, um, decide, you know, what direction you guys are going to go in and like where you're going to put your resources. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see where that goes. And I know that, um, uh, you know, at the time that this podcast comes out, um, we will have already had the panel discussion that you guys are putting on in New York. Big Mezcal, um, does Big Mezcal equal bad uh, looking beyond Oaxaca? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be um, hosted by uh, Tess Rose Lampert. Um, and so really looking forward to that. And I guess we have already experienced it since this has come out already. So it was great. Now, yeah. I'm not sure yet, but we'll see. Um, but you're going to be doing more events like that? Yeah, more panels that are really for people who are interested in um, what does the future of the category look like? Um, 
something that we talk a lot about on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Or try to at least. Yeah. And what's all of our responsibility and learning more about what uh, different people and groups are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, they're called spirited conversations and uh, we'll be having more of them across the country. Definitely. And if you guys want to find out more about this, um, sign up to their mailing list, obviously. Um, It's also the second one, right? Yeah, this will be the first one. There was a first one one with uh, Lou Bank, Mm -hmm. Gilberto from uh, Illegal, and And Jay Schrader. Schrader. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And um, Mescal Collaborative will also be hosting, I'm like, plug, (laughs) uh, Mescal Week, which will be September 8th through 15th. And so the idea of that is that it's a whole week where mezcal is the center of the universe and um, bars and restaurants and other groups can host mezcal Nationally, events. right? Um, Globally? Internationally. internationally. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So um, if you're a bar or restaurant listening or a brand, uh, that is a great time to do um, an event for special uh, can flights, you repeat, cocktails. Can you repeat the date? September 8th through 15th. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can't wait for that. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, okay. So this all brings us to why we are together today talking to you. And um, it is because you approached us and you were like, hey, like, do you want to do a podcast talking about women in Mescal? And we were like, yes, please, tomorrow. <laughs> and so here we are finally being able to sit down with you and really talk um, in some detail about your travels, um, the women that you've met, what they're doing. And um, you can you can share that with us today. And that's going to be super, super awesome. But I think that we should start with the expression that you brought. Okay. So if you could describe that to us. Yes. So this is an expression from uh, Sosima, Maestra Sosima Oliveira. I met her in Oaxaca. Uh, she does tastings in Oaxaca City, um, I think once a week. She has a bodega where she has uh, bottles that you can buy. And then she does, they're kind of like intro to mezcal tastings um, in the evening for small groups of people. And she's from the uh, Chontal region of Oaxaca in the south. And um, this bottle, it's called, her brand is called Fane Cancini which means um, three hummingbirds. And she she's just awesome. She Is this her on the label? Yeah, so okay. that's her on the label. Um, Maybe we can take a picture of the label and we'll post it, even though we can't get this expression here. But yeah, well. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, so I think the label is going to change. I think it's going to look different, but... Um, there is an importer in Denver who will be uh, have three of her expressions oh, that's very exciting. soon. So hopefully at the Mexico in a Bottle in September, she will be there with expressions from Sosima. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so this is, um, so she's a fourth generation mezcalera and she said like 15 years ago when she started, she was really into in infusiones like infusions and she would infuse a mezcal with anything from the region so spices and um, flowers and then she's like and then I got over that and I started doing distillation so this is one from her that has ginger and cacao and she described it as kind of a dessert mezcal okay and um, the agave is pelon verde 
which in that region she's described as like their espadín. So, so very endemic to the area. Uh-huh, it's endemic to the area. She said that she was over the, the infusions. Mm-hmm. So this is part of like some sort of pachuga process. Like it's infused on a third time. If it is, how, how does I think, this? I'm not quite sure, okay. but yeah. We can a, check it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, she has this one and she has, um, she says she just does two distillations with uh, extra things twice a year. So the other one that she had was um, pelos de elote, like the corn hairs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah which yeah. she makes in October. Oh, around I wonder if that's like, like corn after the season. After yeah. the season. I wonder if there's like a buttery flavor to that. Mm, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you try it yeah. when you were there? I did try it. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of buttery. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. But this like, wow, this smells. I mean. You get the, ni- the ginger on the nose. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And she Brilliant. says she has, she adds very little ginger. So um, it's just very strong. And it grew on me. Uh, we tried a number of her other expressions, and this was the last one. Yeah. And I just th- felt like it was different. It, it certainly is. And, and the ginger. Salucita. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Because <laughs> we just like waving in the room. I know. We're yeah. like, we're just smelling the just ginger. Smelling in here. It. The cacao, too. I mean, it's a little bit subtler because ginger is such a powerful, powerful taste and smell. Um, spicy. It's bright. It's bright. I think you get the cacao kind of at the end. And it's a 50, 50%. Mm-hmm. So she's a fourth generation mezcalera. Yeah. Were there other mezcaleras in her family? Her as well? grandmother How was cool. a mezcalera. And then her she learned from her dad. It's a 60 liter batch mm-hmm. just to make a note that's like super, it's small. super small but it's delicious yeah yeah and she is running a, a collective and so she has bottles from other um mezcaleros in um, in that area and in uh sola de vega so when you say it's a collective can you describe to people what that means i think it just means that she and I don't know exactly what her position is or how she would describe her title, but I think she's bottling from different mezcaleros. However, this one she made herself. She made herself. Yeah. Oh, so under the label, yeah. they're they're also including expressions from different producers yes. under that label. Cool. Yeah. Which is something that we find often. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is the owner of the brand or is it a collective kind of like um, – uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like Banez, like like what model is this? I think she's the owner. Um, I don't want to misspeak though. Okay, all right. So, well, maybe we'll yeah. we'll do a little digging. Uh, there's into that. there's a yeah. bunch of different ways that we have here. Yeah, like you have somebody like uh, probably like in situ that they they buy the lots from other mezcaleros and they give them credit on the label, but. There are in situ bottles. Correct. They're not the Correct. mezcaleros or Farolito. Or Farolito yeah. Ones. yeah. So it, it sounds like. And the same, the like same that. with this label. I, I just flipped it over to the back and it gives you all the information. Yeah. So when I went to Oaxaca this last trip, it was like a four week trip. And I was trying to figure out what to do with my time there because if you've been to Oaxaca, you know, it can just go by so quickly. And Um, I wanted to focus my reporting on women, um, not just because that would help narrow it down for me in terms of who I'm visiting and who I'm talking to, but because I felt like the story of women in Mescal is somewhat underreported and we've 
there are a few, there've been a few kind of trend pieces about women in mezcal, but that doesn't allow for the like individual stories of each of these women, you know? And so, um, I just was curious, like initially I thought maybe I'll check out all the different roles that women play in mezcal, but that's like, then you could go to any palenque and right because there's women working there no matter what exactly and so then i tried to narrow it down to women actually making mezcal you're making a point that is is super important like the support system of any palenque that we have here about is like it's mostly women the food the cleaning the moving the doing like the hand like the strong hands are behind like the palenqueros or the master mezcaleros there's a lot of family members that is not just one person yeah absolutely and women have always been involved in making mezcal and transporting it and supporting everything everything everything. um so it was really interesting to Mojaca I I interviewed a few different women who really are in mezcal for different reasons Mm -hmm. um most of them they learn through family so it's like this inherited thing. And, um, but really a kind of diverse collection of, of women. So Sosima is an example who's real. she's making mezcal and she's very front facing. So she's the face of this brand and this group and she's hosting tasties and tastings in Oaxaca. And she, um, I think she's going to be kind of a leader in sustainability initiatives. Oh, how so? Is she implementing some practices? Yeah, definitely. And then also what was so interesting about her tasting is that it's, it was, when I was there, it was for people who met mezcal. It was like their first mezcal tasting. Uh And, um, and so she was giving them an intro to mezcal and how to taste it and the basics. But with that, she was, talking about sustainability and the future of the categories like they went together there was no separation there was no this is mezcal and oh by the way um there are these other issues we should be concerned about if you like this drink it was very much part of the talk and oh, so that's really wonderful to hear even that yeah. framework was something that you don't always see no you don't a lot of times if people are just introducing newcomers it's just all about the expression what is an agave plant how is it made blah 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 but i think that's so crucial throwing in all of the aspects of it in the same conversation i mean it can be overwhelming but people were there for the tasting so their their minds were open yeah and she does it in a way where there's like humor and lightness and history and i just think the way that she talks about it is really dynamic um so she was one uh, person that was great to meet and then um another example of a woman that i met was uh her name's conchita concepcion and she uh learned from her father she's a single mom of four and um she doesn't have a brand and she's really kind of figuring out, you know, how to utilize this economic resource that's been how her family has survived. Um, Did they survive selling it locally? So Locally. Mm-hmm. And um, she struggles even to just get it to Oaxaca, like to get it beyond the local market is a challenge because because 
like the same challenges that it would be for anyone in a rural community with a lack of resources. So she told me this one story about how she was and wanted to enter some mezcal into a contest. I think it was a Maestro de Mezcal Encuentro. And um, the she's in La Chihuiso, which is uh, near Miahuatlan. And it's a tiny town. And she there was rain for like eight days. And so the road was washed out. And she had to ride an hour and 20 minutes on her bicycle with like 15 liters of mezcal oh to get the bus from Miahuatlan to Oaxaca City. And um, so that's like yeah. a day in the life of just trying to get her product out there. You didn't mention her last name. Do you know? Oh, it? yeah. It's... Um, I have it written down. Concepcion Hernandez Jimenez. Okay. And she has she has a palenque. So her dad has a palenque okay. and she lives there with her family and her kids. And she's making mezcal with him as well. Is there any specific mezcal that she was doing that she wanted to bring to the, the encuentro? Uh, that one was a Tepextate. Okay. Yeah. Which they, I think they primarily work with Piquish, Quish, and Tepextate. And, all, all, um, um, yeah, from how, the terreno. So if she's so remote and everything, how did you find out about her? Um, I had kind of put the word out with some friends mm -hmm. that I was interested in interviewing mescaleras. And so that was a funny interview because I was leaving for the beach that day and someone WhatsApp me and was like, hey, there's a mescalera in town doing something. Oh, cool. You should find her and interview her. So I was like, kind of connected to her through like three different people and then um we met up and i got to interview her and taste How her she? mezcal she's 34 mm -hmm. yeah no it's, i'm just asking because you're saying single mom mm -hmm. of four mm -hmm. from a rural area like mm -hmm. i don't think many people have to understand what that looks like yeah so putting a number on on age and a lot of kids yeah. and She's very Being, young. He, she's yeah. very young, but she has, you know, three or four lives behind her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, she was telling me about some of the, I was asking her about the challenges of being like a mescalera, working in mescal period. And there's some of the same challenges that women face everywhere where we live under these patriarchal systems when you were speaking with her, did you ask her, like, you know, what, what would be your hope? Like, what are you going for? What's your ideal here? Like, because it's not certified as mezcal, mm -hmm. right? Both the CRM or anything like, or the DO. Mm -hmm. So what was her answer? Her answer was, she's like, I'm just want a place to sell it. Okay. I want to be able so to So she would be mezcal. happy with like a brand owner coming up to her and being like, I want to bottle this on my label. She, she I, was probably will be happy to just come to Incita like you you want it. Like people pe people and places that they have already a few different mezcals and palenques mm -hmm. to be able to be bottled from somebody else's name, but assured that you're going to get that money paid with every single batch. I think that is what we have seen in many other instances that works for small producers like them. Yeah, she definitely said that, you know, she's like, I just need um, a place to sell, but also, and then I pushed and I was like, would you want your own brand? Um, and she was like, well, yeah, obviously, but. But that's not so even in the forefront of, of her brain. I mean, yeah. she can barely get to Oaxaca. So yeah. 
that yeah. forget and, about paying for the certification and then bottling and labeling yeah. and design and the whole thing. And she did create her own label, um, which was beautiful. It was a, a oil painting that she then got printed onto a label, and it's a a, a picture of a woman on a on a bicycle. The, the story of her riding the bike with yes. 15 yes, liters. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes. exactly. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And so but the label with the bicycle, it was so distinctive that I was like, this is so beautiful. And, yeah. I, and it's, it has nothing to do with mezcal, but at the same time. But there's a story. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. 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 And yeah, so yeah, yeah. her story is just, to me, it was really illustrative of any kind of rural producer, mm -hmm. um, but also. Uh, uh, to me, I was like, this is a, this is a single mom working really hard to provide for her kids and for herself. Physically. Physically working really like, oh, hard. Just, yeah. Yeah. This is hard. Work. Yeah. And yeah. for small producers like this, is there, is it, it's seasonal, right? Like there's mm -hmm. only certain times where they can harvest and produce. So it's limited in that regard. Right. And so I think, you know, like moms everywhere people everywhere she figures out what to do for income in the meantime um but she did say that one of the i was at i've asked all the women about um if they face any judgment or discrimination or how it feels to be a woman in the industry and she did mention that you know when she was starting to go into the city to sell her mezcal or um, meet with people that, you know, there were rumors that she was going to the city to sell other things. Huh. Use yeah. your imagination. Yeah. Um, That's so and, fucked up. Yeah. And I heard the same thing from um, women weavers in uh, Teotitlan um, who now have a collective. And they said that they when they would go to sell their rugs, um, that was also a, as a collective. Uh, I think before they started a collective, yeah, which, um, but when they were just single women going to make an income off of their craft, um, yeah, it was perceived that they they had to be doing something else. Right, they couldn't possibly be there just to sell things that they had produced. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's that's so, horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I met other producers. You know, someone with a very different story was uh, Betty from um, she makes mezcal with the family that makes mezcal for El Bujo uh -huh. and um, she's the daughter of the mezcalero and she started making her own mezcal but also for El Bujo because uh, the demand was so great that each of the siblings had to like build their own palenques at their own houses and start making everybody had to start producing yeah yeah and so that was a different story she's also a single mom um so she has her own palenque producing yeah. her own expressions um yes and you know the um el bujo wanted to keep working with the same family and so it was kind of this natural progression i guess oh that's so cool yeah and she's yeah. also she does other things for the like for the business you know so she took us to the warehouse and, and is, El, is Bujo a, a brand owner and then they partner with producers mm -hmm. is that that's how I, that I model think they is, just right? work with one one just, just with that one family, family. Mm -hmm. but nonetheless it's somebody else 
Palenque. It's not yes. owned by the brewery. No. They're, they're no. a client, they're raw material. Yeah. They produce it, they sell it, they commercialize it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And she's in um, Matatlan. So, yeah, overall in Oaxaca, there's just a lot of different stories from women. It's so nice and- to hear this. And forgive me for cutting you off because I'm just thinking, like, with the limited resources that we have here of like understanding how it is in Oaxaca specifically, because every Mm -hmm. state is different. You know, we often hear the name of Graciela, of course, especially if you've seen that recent film, um, Spirit of of a Nation, um, the Mezcal film, which is amazing and lovely and highlights um, Graciela and that. But, you know, we know, we know her, she's been on the scene for a very long time and you know that's real monero for people that don't know um great expression amazing juice um and we also hear about berta vasquez and reina sanchez from Resperal that contribute to to that brand um and then the other one that i was thinking about um gabriela when we were just speaking was um sandra ortiz brenna from in situ who have their own label now which is farolito i mean in situ is their label in mexico but farolito will is now in the States, at least on the West Coast. Officially. Officially. It's not here yet um, on the East Coast, but hopefully it will be. Um, And so they're different. You know, those are the women that we know that are very much, you know, in the forefront. So it's so interesting to hear about these other women that we know nothing about, but are still active in the community, who I hope we'll see soon. Also, it's it's worth mentioning that they're not necessarily on the production side. Like we know of Sandra, Sure. Through in situ as being, you know, the the main project manager, production, uh, mm-hmm. advertisement, like the brains in many ways of 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 producing something that is under a name brand, but also right. a restaurant and but as also we get educational. Maybe as we move into Durango next and talk about what it's like there for women in the industry, we'll we'll get more yeah. into that the different roles that women play. Yeah, yeah. they play all of them. That's, all of, that's yeah. I think that's why we we should just make it very clear. Yeah. This is this is yes, it's dominated but by men in some way or form, but the the background, the strong the strong background mm-hmm. and um, strength that a business that at least needs is it's very obvious that comes from a lot of women. Mm-hmm, definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, that was part of my goal going down was to talk to women who we haven't heard from. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mezcal world and also in like larger mediums and just to really understand how their paths and their barriers and um and their achievements and their achievements just by talking to them and knowing that they're they're visual they're here yeah like it's not just a ghost that comes in and out of a palenque as help yeah absolutely and one of the things that um betty said that really uh, stuck with me that i think is kind of illustrative of um, a lot of the women that I met in Mescal. She said something along the lines of, you know, I started, uh, it was 10 years ago that I realized that I knew how to make Mescal, but I knew that I knew how to make Mescal. It was kind of like this chain of like, I knew that I knew how to make Mescal, but I didn't really believe myself kind of and she said you know she like her dad would leave and say you know cuida like take care of the mezcal the distillation um 
Right. She would be left holding full responsibility for what was happening, which as everybody knows that listens to this podcast, it's very specific and it's, it's all about intuition because we don't, you know, a lot of times they don't have the metrics or thermometers or chemistry elements that are going to tell them exactly what's going on. It's by experience. Yeah. And so she, she knew how to make mescal. Um, she just didn't, A, didn't have to necessarily. She was trusted. She was trusted, by absolutely. Her, like by her dad that he was probably the mascalera at the time. And like, I know you can do this. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally. Going but she may have not trusted herself, yeah. which is what women do quite often. often. Yeah. And and also then I think, um, I, I think what I saw in Oaxaca and maybe in Durango is women owning their roles. Whereas we, as we said, women have always had roles in mezcal, but I think I saw more women... And that's what some of the mezcaleras told me is that we're like owning our roles now as women who make mezcal, as women who do X for mezcal. We're saying it out loud and it's getting a little more exposure. Well, I mean, that's a good segue, right? Because we often, we've had quite a few guests on that have traveled to Durango. I think you've been part of one or two of those groups. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And something that people are always commenting on is just the socioeconomic differences within the two states. Um, And so it's important to recognize that as well when we're talking about women in the industry, because I'm sure that there are different entry points for them. Than and, and different opportunities available versus women in Oaxaca. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the main difference between if you look at the roles of women in Mezcal and Durango versus Oaxaca. Durango, um, most of the women involved in Mezcal um, have had numerous opportunities, like academic opportunities. They have degrees. They've gone to school other places. And then a number of them have come back to Durango uh, to work in Mezcal. Really made the conscious decision that like, this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. Right. And are applying their skills, whether it be marketing or biochemistry (laughs) um, or uh, business management to, to Mezcal. Let's talk about some of them. Yeah, I mean, we can start out with um, I, we've we have discussed Fabiola before, but mm-hmm. but you had a chance to really talk to her. I know at length about what she's doing for Lagrimas de Dolores. Yeah, so I I feel like there's like this Durango club now yeah. that especially <laughs> in New York, there's like yeah. we're all about Durango at the moment. Yeah, you know, and they, they have good juice. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you, you can't <laughs> what, deny what it. What is not you to get, love it? Yeah, um, and it, and it's just fascinating and. Fabiola is one of those reasons where I was like sold. Um, she came into Mescal through biochemistry. Um, she was studying and I think Tess told her story a little bit, but um, and then fell into Mescal, but she was studying um, beverages. And so she naturally had this pull to Mescal because she's from Durango. And started making mezcal and I think she was just she's just a really interesting example of someone that is coming from another field and has so has a different perspective um she's very respectful of tradition and is also adding kind of her own take and really you know saying that she she's all about learning from from the agave and what the agave has to tell her about how that drink should taste at the end 
And um, she's also a mom. She has a kid already and one on the way. And she said mezcal is just, it's part of her her world. It's always going to be part of her world. Even if she takes a step back and is focused on being a mom, she might have a vinata at her home. Um, and It's her, part of her. It's part of her. Yeah. And her husband is also a mezcalero as well and came through the same path that she did. So I thought that was very you that was unique um absolutely also. a yeah. husband wife team that's incredible yeah. yeah you know that is you just mentioned something that it just you know it, it make me think and and just puzzle a little bit is you know in in the life of a man becoming a father and and being part of a family doesn't necessarily stops your career mm-hmm. like it, it it does change your life but it doesn't stop you having to go to work Mm-hmm. You're actually kind of like you're seen as you have to be working because you know the the other part of the cup the of the pair is is not. But for her, like we have been hearing about her for probably the last like five months, six five months. months, yeah, on on such a high regard, and then you know choosing probably somebody that has this in her DNA now that is making agave, making uh, mezcal, and. The fermentation, the process, the distillation, all the all the chemistry part that she probably is like the wizard, mm-hmm. and having to do the conscious pause of her life for a couple of months, maybe if if any, or maybe a year, or maybe two years. Who know what what is in her you know plan? Yeah, yeah. But that that's an interesting thing. Like, I mean, it, it's very reminiscent of conversations in our country and our my mm-hmm. my little world anyway yep. that's going on about you know how do you how do you maintain your career how do you have a family how do you mm-hmm. do it all as a woman when you have these different expectations that are thrown on you and personal ones that you that you want, you want. to respect yeah. and yeah. you want to do yeah you know? i mean one thing she said that i loved is she said you know i'm passionate about mezcal and i'm passionate about being a mom and and it, you can have you can be you both you can do both that's, that's and i the want thing. my children yeah. to see that I'm passionate about my job. Um, yeah. and, and that was echoed by um, Marta Garza, who is the owner of Cuero Viejo, mm-hmm. also in Durango. And we had long conversations in the car about this kind of triple uh, duty that women now have of working. And hopefully, if you're like lucky enough to be passionate about your job and also possibly being a mom and then typically maybe being like the kind of head of household duties mm-hmm. right know? because and we know statistically it's just the truth that women do more household work than men do no, no matter what mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so that was a interesting conversation and yeah like conversations yeah. that we are having here but in what's the interesting is that you are having these conversations with these women in Durango who are coming at it from a different angle Versus the ones in Oaxaca that, you know, come from more remote areas, more socioeconomically distressed that, you know, that's not part of the conversation. It's it's different. There's a really interesting factor that is you you mentioned two different women from two different states with two different lifelines. Mm-hmm. The one that is a single mom has to be working on mezcal and has to make this mezcal happen to have a living. Mm-hmm. And the other one might have to stop work to have a kid i don't know Mm -hmm. it seems like i don't want to put it so hot but if without knowing all the details and we don't know them 
it's just the first glimpse of each of those lives. Looks... Well, you see the difficulty exists exactly. in both ways. It's a right. duality. It's a duality, you but it's, nonetheless, yeah. it's, it's still the commitment of, of making something right. through the adversity of whatever is in front of you. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it also illustrates the socioeconomic kind of differences where um, mezcal is the economic opportunity for both. For both, um, but also it's the, I would say it's kind of the only one for someone like Conchita, like that's what her family makes money off of, that's what she knows, um, that's why women have always been in Mezcal because it's just, it's it the money. economic resource, um, whereas uh, I guess Fabiola comes into it from a little bit more of like a privileged background where she, she chose Mezcal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, and Martha as well. Martha, yeah. 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 Um, are there any other women in Durango that you spoke with? Yeah. Um, uh, one woman, Emily, whose, um, name, I last name I am blanking on, but she's the CEO of, uh, Mescal 618. 618. And I yeah. think, uh, Noah talked about That's them. That's the one that it was a little more like an urban vinata, right? Yeah. Uh, indus more industrial and targeting mm -hmm. young people in Durango. It's kind of like a cocktail mezcal um an entryway for for young folks that are trying just trying mezcal and um she came into it also through academia so um her first uh degree was in business and working in uh, nombre de dios which is a mezcal producing region in durango was uh, she had a project there based around mezcal and then um, kind of was inspired by the mezcaleros there and saw it as a way, as like an economic resource basically for local communities. And so that's how she got interested in it. And then she's done, she has a degree in marketing and then I think in um, forestry studies. And so sustainability is kind of weaved into uh, her brand and business as well they have a nursery right yeah they have yeah. a nursery and um and her parents are are academics in um, environmental studies as well and so she kind of had this like circular path back to them but um she's doing it in her own way and um she she kind of opened I, I'm not sure if she was the first one. I don't think so. But she was one of the first brands to try and export and try and kind of create this pathway from product to brand to exportation. And so she talked about how she hopes that she's kind of like setting an example for other women. Are, are they available? Is 618 available in the States? Not yet. Not yet. I, yeah. Um, they're working, working on, on it. it okay um and i know we can we can have lagrimas now mm -hmm. because um they're in a couple of our friends liquor stores around the city are they in um california as well i think so yeah okay yeah and um the cuero viejo not yet not yet okay mm -hmm. soon so what we'll do also on the website um when we post this podcast is we'll include at least as much information as we can so if people are going to be traveling to oaxaca and are interested in looking up these producers um they'll at least have a, a way to do that names or whatever yeah that would be great yeah um one thing i wanted to add about talking to the women in durango is that you know, I, I also asked them about challenges of being 
women in mezcal and the industry and they were much more rep- reminiscent of challenges you might hear from women here in the United States in the industry so it's just a male dominated industry mm-hmm. and um one thing that like Emily said and um I think Martha spoke to this too was that they naturally were trying to be collaborative with their efforts and so um, they're both part of Espiritus de Durango, which is trying to promote the sector in Durango as a whole. And um, but they felt like they also had to do that to kind of counter any skepticism. Uh, well, this idea jealousy. of pull, pulling together to mm-hmm. make yourselves um, like, you know, more. Equal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Equal. It sounds horrendous, but having to try to, to present yourself as the same value and strength in your business. Like it's like there's legitimacy in that in numbers or something. Like it's yeah. it's silly, but I understand it because I'm a woman and I think I feel it too in like my own way. Um there's something about um honing in on that kind of like camaraderie and strength mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Which I think is wonderful. Like yeah. I, I think that creating community is something that women historically have been able to do very naturally. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is it it is a strength. Definitely. I think in general, um, there are a lot of brands that might be male owned that are hiring women. I, I, I'm just I'm not sure exactly. Um, that's great that there's women ownership and I think there are a lot of words around like empowerment that are used when um, like associated with the marketing or in the branding. And I wonder what that actually looks like. I would be very curious to know. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of brands that are, are working with women and hiring women and you don't really hear about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like Betty, for example, at El Bujo, like she's not. Right. I mean, when, when you get involved in the intricacies of marketing, yeah, (laughs) um, there's a lot of different language that can be used um, specifically for reasons that maybe aren't completely related to the substantiation of what they are, but um, that's a whole different podcast episode. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And um, I, yeah, I just think that, People, like women, do deserve to work in mezcal at all different levels. And so um, if you're hiring women or giving women leadership roles um, or opening up seats for them at the table, that's what you should be doing. And I don't I don't think that deserves extra credit. It's just something that... It's something that should we just should be happening. Yeah. 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 Agreed. So as far as consumers stateside, you know, if, if we're interested in supporting these women, I guess if the expressions are available, you know, go buy them, go enjoy them. Um, and if they're not, then it's, it's a little bit trickier, right? Because it's only if we travel down there. It is tricky because unless there's a expression here that you can buy. It's like, how else are you supposed to economically support these women? Right. Um, Or, and I think that one way to do it is by asking questions though. um, And asking about women in the industry and celebrating those women. So when you are visiting Oaxaca, for example, go to a tasting with Sosima or, um, you know, ask about women mescaleras and and support them while you're there. Margarita Blas, she does uh, Cruz de Fuego, and cool. she has this amazing cereal that we try. 
recently. That is, um, I met the, the gentleman that does the import for them. And he said that Margarita's favorite, like if I can just do one, would be this. And it was that Cyril that is a... And, and this is a cool. this is a brand that's available. It's a brand that is available in the yeah. states, and it's in the, it's, yeah. it's it's on the very accessible low price. Like uh, that is kind of worsen in some way or form, but uh, the juice is delicious. And we'll we'll link to all this stuff. Yeah. That, we'll link to the stuff that we talked about that's available, and we'll also give as much information about the um, the stuff that you can just find down in in Mexico as well, in case you guys are traveling and you want to um, look it up yourself. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think also just listening to these women's stories is important too because it illustrates wider stories about um being a woman in general and also just human stories it's the the great thing about for me um meeting these women and hearing their stories is that i just learn more about a place in general um and about the people there it just widens the amount of stories that you can hear and connections that you can make and i think they're very relatable whether you're a woman or you're not we were very excited to have you because we haven't been able to encounter this kind of conversation in in such a depth um obviously there are hours and hours that can yeah. be follow of this yeah. and this is just open. i mean we just this kind is of just the door open the surface of yes. these women's stories but but nonetheless it has been the first and we Realistic. also, I think, mm -hmm. absolutely encourage people to um, check your blog uh, and also Mescalistas. And maybe and maybe yeah. why not? Send us, if you know more Maestras Mescaleras, mm -hmm. if you know somebody absolutely. that is worth yeah. research and if you want to, so like, just, you know, give us a shout yeah. and we will we will put it as a link. Like, yeah. it's, it's, this is part of the community. We're opening the door for people to know more. Yeah, they're, they're out there. And um, I didn't have time to visit as many women as I would have liked to. And I think they're just kind of underreported and doing their thing. And, and I'm trying to figure out exactly what I want to do with a lot of the interviews that I recorded because I don't really want to fit them into a trend piece. Mm -hmm. Um, and sounds like it could be like an ongoing series or something, yeah, you know, kind of looking for, maybe there's some funding to go back and do more in-depth interviews or videos, um, to Even really, just to re-listen to what your first interview is this past, yeah. whatever year was yeah, and come back five years later mm -hmm. with the notes of what you knew of her. Yeah. Of her role and how we evolved and what happened. Like, I don't know. There's there's so much possibilities to do something important in there. Yeah, exactly. Well, if anybody's interested in helping uh, Farron figure this out, <laughs> you can hit her up, email yeah. her. <laughs> Sponsor her. Accepting sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> well, Farron, thank you so, so much for coming to speak with us today about this uh, Women in Mezcal. It's been really awesome. Thank you for having me. Is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salucita.